Take a network break. Hey, you may want to bring an extra virtual donor to two. We've got a lot of news this week, including a raft of announcements from Cisco Live. There's some angst and drama in the network ASIC market and much more. We're sponsored today by Path Solutions. Have you ever had a user complain about a problem, yet your network monitoring system says everything's fine? That means your monitoring system doesn't look deep or broad enough to know what's really going on. And if you want to know what's missing, we'll tell you more about it at the break. After the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba on the role of identity and security and why identity is a critical component of a zero trust approach to network access. And last but not least, join us on April 22nd. It's our first ever live stream event. We're live streaming with Alkira. The Alkira Network Cloud lets you deploy and manage single and multi-cloud networks with visibility, security, and governance all built in. And there'll be technical deep dives, roundtable discussions hosted by the packet pushers, use cases, customer scenarios, and more. You can register at packetpushers.net slash live stream it's a free event yeah i'm looking forward to it. it's going to be our first one we're going to do a couple of them this year and basically a lot of people have asked us to do live podcast recordings and we've always shied away for lots of reasons largely to do with quality and the difficulty of finding guests who are willing to be seen and to do things live is not you know it is not easy for people yep. um to sort of face up to 10 to twelve thousand people <laughs> live, so, yeah uh, so we don't like it, but this is, we, we've decided to create special events. There'll be a handful of them this year. Uh, and this is our first one with Alkira, who is doing a really neat thing for multi-cloud networking, which I like. I like the style of this. It has a particular approach that I think is going to be very useful going forward. And it's not obvious how it works and it needs explanation. Yeah. So go to packetpushers.net slash live stream to register. And we hope to see you there. All right, well, let's kick off the news with Greg. Uh, it was uh, April Fool's yesterday, the day before we recorded, and you just wanted to make it a comment about uh, corporations and April Fool's jokes. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of April Fool's, largely because uh, when I grew up, uh, I was often picked on and pranked as the kids used to run around and say, oh, but it was just a prank. But it wasn't. It was vile and disgusting bullying, right? Right. And so April Fool's to me is just a rehash. It's an opportunity for bullies and people with less than pleasant personalities to bully people and call it a prank. And so um, I am violently opposed to it. And basically any form of prank is about lying and deceit and falsehoods. True. Those are strong words. Um, yeah. But I understand your point. Yes. I guess it depends on the spirit in which it was undertaken. What even if it's delivered, people who are the butt of pranks often end up with some sort of emotional or mental damage. Yeah. So uh, if you haven't thought about pranking from that point of view, instead of you think it's funny for you, have you ever thought about what it's like for the person being pranked? Yes. You have to consider how it lands. And uh, I'm actually very tempted one year to take all of the April Fool's announcements and treat them as absolutely serious news and see how funny <laughs> that sounds. Maybe that would help end the practice. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe that pranking and bullying are the same thing, basically. All right. And so, yep. Yes. So corporations, please don't do April Fool's gags. It's not fun. It's you know, the, the game's up. It was funny in the 1970s, but, uh, you know, guess what? It's 2020. Yeah. 2021, actually. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's dive into all the news that came out of Cisco Live 2021. First up is the announcement is on Cisco Plus, which, as far as I can tell, means you can buy Cisco equipment on a consumption-based model via subscription, i.e. only paying for what you use. That is, I think, the announcement. It's pretty vague. Uh, they just said Cisco Plus Network as a service and it's going to come around eventually. Uh, they don't have anything in place now to give us, but it looks like a reaction to the HP uh, Esmeral, where you buy your data center consumption as on a per VM, 
per container basis. And HP then supplies you with the storage and the computers and the networking to make that. And then they've been extending that model to supply software that sits on top. So you can now buy your Kubernetes and everything, all the stuff that you need to make a cloud oriented data center on premise is now comes as a pay as you use. And I think Dell has something similar built around the VRAC model. And it's probably got a different name these days. I find it difficult to keep up with the name changes uh, over at VMware Dell. And I think Cisco's realized that they've been caught out here and they're now moving to, um, they. part of the messaging was very complicated. Some of the executives were touting it as a way to bundle up the licensing. So it wasn't actually a product sale. It was a way to take all the licensing and bundle it up and make it easier to consume. So instead of buying lots and lots of different small licenses, they're going to come up with a bundle licensing. Uh-huh. And then when you actually go and read the documentation, uh, they start talking about um, uh, Cisco now as a service, boost speed and agility with scale on demand solutions that intelligently adapt to your needs. So I, I wasn't sure of the messaging that Cisco put forward. I thought it was badly done overall. It seemed confusing to me too. I I wanted a specific example, like, okay, let's say I buy a 32 port switch, but I only need half of them. Am I only paying for half of the ports? Like how I wanted more details. I didn't quite get that. Yeah. And, and the executives weren't coming out with a consistent answer around this. And I think uh, we've talked before that Cisco's uh, probably Cisco's biggest challenge is that its internal organization is reflected in the way it goes outwards to customers. And so you've got this different, executives from different business units telling stories from their point of view, which aren't aligned. And, and this product is obviously some sort of six, 12, two, three years away. And executives aren't, don't know where they're going to be um, any sort of dig into it. Like even their VDI, I looked at their VDI, it's a pay per use, pay as you grow, but there's no details. Things are just missing. Uh-huh. So I think it's a future thing as best as I can tell. And uh, as we've said before that, I do believe Cisco will struggle with anything when it tries to do these unified things because Cisco is not one company like HPE very much is. It's a lot of different business units who actually compete with each other and they all have separate profit and loss statements and they all have competing interests. And for Cisco to bring this together, they're uh, they're really going to have to transform the internal business operation to be one company, not 10 companies or 20 companies, if that makes sense. So going to be a tough road ahead for customers, Cisco's customers. I would probably say I'd steer away from Cisco plus for as long as possible until Cisco finishes it or, you know, it'll be nice when it's finished. I'm sure. How's that? Yeah. So apparently the first offering under the Cisco plus model is going to be Cisco plus hybrid cloud, which they're calling a mix of data center networking, compute and storage. And again, details are scant, but Cisco says this is going to be available mid 2021. So in a few months, and maybe we'll get more concrete details then. Oh, that's weird. I actually thought it was sassy. I thought Cisco Plus, the, the, the briefing that I was in, they said the first Cisco Plus feature was going to be SD-WAN slash SASE. Okay. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. Make of that what you will. Yes. Uh, they also did mention something called Network as a Service, which is supposed to be available at the end of 2021. Again, it's a pay-as-you-use model that includes networking gear, security, and observability. Um but also, like, so I'm not sure, like, is this sort of a Cato or an Ariaka model where uh, I'm riding over somebody else's backbone network and not, I, I, it was very confusing. So more to come. Yeah, I think so. I think Cisco's kind of realized that its SD-WAN is fairly out of date now. Its approach of putting Viptela into routers and then bonding it into the core iOS and 
you know, it, it acquired Viptela in August 2017. It completed the acquisition, right? And mm-hmm. we were talking about integrated security and SD-WAN all the way back in 2016. We said the obvious evolution of SD-WAN is that your security would be integrated into it. And I mean, Gartner even caught up and documented the history in November 2019 by defining SASE as a term, which, uh, you know, most of the industry and all the vendors uh, disliked, but felt that they had to go forward with it because otherwise Gartner wouldn't like them and they wouldn't get where they want to be in the magic quadrant. Oh, they have glommed so, onto it hard. Yes. And they glommed onto it, you know. Um, I feel that um, Cisco is going to try and take all of its security offerings and then bond them into the SD-WAN somehow. But again, this is a future thing. This is not a current thing, except beyond you can take it, uh, Cisco's umbrella, buy it as a separate product, and then there's some fairly loose integration between the two. Like the dashboards aren't integrated, like the security dashboards where you see how much blocking and security function. There's the SD-WAN, you know, the Viptela dashboards over there and the umbrella dashboards over there and the proxy umbrella is over here. And, you know, all that sort of stuff is all separate and isolated and sold separately. And now Cisco has to say, um, I've got to bring all these together. So they say this offer, which will be orderable in May, 2021, that's not deliverable. That's orderable. Will allow you to purchase and start using the core SaaS components, cloud security, zero trust, SD-WAN immediately with the ability to transition to a single subscription service in the future. So they're not even saying it's here. Right. They're saying they can order it in May and at some indeterminate point in the future, you can transition to a single subscription service. So this is really premature product announcement, even by Cisco standards. Um, and that at some time, I mean, I, as a customer, I think this would be something, again, I would stay away from because do you really want to go through the licensing hassle of Cisco changing its mind here, here, we're going to do this, we're going to do that before they get to the final state and you've got to live through all of that transition and go through the spreadsheeting and the cost control and the redeployment of the software. I would be very cautious around this. Yeah, so I want to try to nail this down a little bit. We are talking about Cisco's uh, SASE announcement uh, and it's essentially a conglomeration of multiple different Cisco products. So Viptela SD-WAN, the VPN client, the Duo Identity Service, the Umbrella Security Service, Thousand Eyes for monitoring. Uh, And what they're saying is that you'll be able to essentially buy them all as one product, but it doesn't sound quite like you'll be able to operate them all as one product at this time. And so what would be the point? You would be, you know, (laughs) know, five years, Cisco's five years behind the market here and still not got a viable option. So I would be, you know, again, I would be reluctant to engage on this. I would probably look to, you know, if you're comparing products, compare the SASE model. You want the security integrated at the edge of the network. We've had plenty of other shows with other companies. We've talked to Aruba. We've talked to HPE through their Silver Peak acquisition and their SASE integration stories. They have all felt much more compelling than this messaging. And again, I did come away with the feeling that the Cisco executives were not at all confident of what they were pitching here and they didn't know what it was going to be like or how it was going to work. So, Yeah, a couple of things. So we know Cisco likes to pre-announce that they're moving into a space to sort of hold customers in place to say, don't go to that competitor because we'll have it at some point. So they're sort of putting their stake in the ground. But I really feel like this smells to me like, remember when Cisco's iWAN came out? It was their first attempt at SD-WAN, and it was essentially Cisco took a bunch of stuff in-house and tried to tie it all together and didn't really work, and then they went and acquired Viptela. I think that's kind of the same thing going on here. They've got a lot of components that they can sort of tick the boxes. This means sassy, but they're not all integrated. And so this is their effort to sort of hold customers in place while they get their act together. Or maybe they'll just do like they did with Viptela and go out and actually buy somebody like a Zscaler and say, okay, now we've got Sassy. 
Yeah, it's hard to know. I think they that internally they can't. I think the challenge here isn't so much that they haven't got the components. I think they have. Yeah, they do. I think the challenge here is getting the internal organization to cooperate. Uh, by and large, internally, Cisco organ- internally doesn't cooperate with each other very well. Mm-hmm. And the organi- somehow the organization is resistant enough to change to struggle here. So I would just wait for that to happen out. Wait for as long as you can. If you're committed to the Cisco product line, which is you know perfectly fine, um, probably delay until it's clear that this is progressing in a particular direction that you can survive. Yeah, exactly. All right, Cisco also announced a new option from its Duo Identity Services platform to replace passwords with either biometrics or USB security keys, such as the YubiKey. The biometric options include a touch-based biometric or face ID. Uh, so the idea of using smartphones is two-factor authentication, which is just what this is. So when you press touch ID on your Apple or face ID or uh, similar sorts of functionality on your Android, there's always been apps that you could t- they would pop up and give you a message, you know, and you sit, type in a code or something. Mm-hmm. I think Cisco is just announcing that it's caught up with that. Yes, and the uh, yes, they're they're touting it as getting rid of passwords using other alternatives, which have been around. Yeah, the advantage here is that Cisco's a big company, you know, as a fifty billion dollar valuation, it can sort of stand toe to toe with Apple and Google here, and do um, buddy buddy deals, right? You know, friend friend to friend, big company to big company deals here, mm-hmm. and Cisco might get access to some special APIs inside of Apple iOS, which is something its competitors can't do for sure. Um, and so we might have access to some greater capabilities than would otherwise be, you know, sort of known. So, you know, maybe they'll have an edge or a competitive edge there in feature sets, but equally not so sure. And it's certainly a recognition that we're going to be living in a world of more distributed workforce with folks all over the place. And so having different authentication methods uh, is a nice flexible option for folks to have. And nobody likes passwords, including administrators who are constantly having to reset. Uh, although I'm not sure what would happen if you lost your YubiKey, but that's a different issue. Well, well, I guess we'll find out. Yes. Last but not least, Cisco has announced the integration of its Thousand Eyes acquisition with its App Dynamics acquisition. Thousand Eyes measures internet performance, App Dynamics measures application performance. So the integration should allow for better visibility, again, in an age of distributed workforces that are relying on a mix of SaaS, cloud, and on prem applications. And specifically, what happens is you'll be able to get Thousand Eyes metrics in the App Dynamics Dash Studio monitoring dashboard. And ideally, the idea is that your app folks and your network folks would be able to sort of see the same stuff and be able to coordinate uh, more effectively on troubleshooting. And this was a piece of the announcement which was very exciting and came across really well. So uh, app dy- the, the App Dynamics people seem to be well organized and well structured. Thousand Eyes was put into the App Dynamics business unit, so it's definitely like aligned in terms of that sense. And they've rapidly integrated into the App Dynamics product. They've been touting the integration for a couple of months now, and mm-hmm. it's only been not that long since they acquired them, really. Um, so that's they've, impressive. Yeah, they've had App Dynamics for a couple of years, but Thousand Eyes was pretty recent. Mm. And but the integration between the like they've only Cisco only acquired right. Thousand Eyes like less than a year ago, I think. Right. This is speedy so, a speedy integration, particularly for speedy Cisco. Speedy integration, yeah. and it sort of you know shows you that. Uh, this internal organization results in um, customer alignment around what you want to have, if you know what I'm saying. So, mm-hmm. um, and it was obvious that when Thousand Eyes was put into App Dynamics, that this was where it is. So, App Dynamics is now able to not only monitor the application performance, and you know, so if you've got an application being developed in the cloud or running in a container infrastructure or whatever it is that you want, 
you've now got the ability to monitor what happens to the application on the internet. Of course, the Thousand Eyes has its probes around the world. It's able to trace um, the applications. You can then put the probes on premise into your switches or into servers or on Raspberry Pis to do testing of the network. And so now you can start to monitor the end-to-end performance of the application, including the network. So getting network visibility, or as they call it, observability, which is all the range amongst app developers to call it observability. Yes. Fashion everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and as part of that, Cisco also announced that Thousand Eyes agents can run on Catalyst 9300 and 9400 switches. So using that as uh, an agent to get uh, to measure specific links. If I remember rightly, that was always possible. The Catalyst 9300, 9400 supports containers and Thousand Eyes had agents that could go into those containers, but that was a third party um, separate process. I believe this announcement to be saying that's now standard feature. So the Thousand Eyes agents are now in the code. You just tick a box and it's up and running. So not exactly an innovation, more of an extension of, well, we own it. We should turn this on by default sort of thing. Yeah, but I am happy to see this kind of integration happening quickly. It makes a lot of sense. It's a nice unification of these two units and hopefully should actually deliver some value. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Uh, so links to all these announcements will be in the show notes for this show, uh, Network Break 327. There's also a story in there by Kurt Marco, uh, who has a good overview of the app dynamics and Thousand Eyes integration if you want more details. So one thing I wanted to highlight, Drew, you sat through much of the same experience <laughs> uh, that we got. and. Um, there was a lot of emphasis from Cisco executives around uh, so what I call um, ESG, which is environmental, social, and corporate governance. Mm. And this is a big thing amongst companies at the moment to say uh, that we uh, that our businesses are about improving people's lives, that we're doing things to improve society, that we're contributing to charity programs, and that we're committed to things like user privacy. Do you remember? Did you see a lot of that? That was very clear. No, that was very clear that they were very much harping on Cisco as a positive force for both uh, workers, customers, and the the globe. Which is highly admirable, by the way, and probably (laughs) long overdue. Good to see lots of companies getting behind this. You've got to remember, too, that Chuck Robbins actually sits on the board of BlackRock, which is a a massive uh, investment firm that owns like a lot of shares and it's a big thing amongst the consultants and the analysts at the moment that companies who take ESG, social, you know, environmental, social and governance and corporate governance seriously, they will succeed in the future. And Cisco sort of tried to say, you can trust us. Uh, We are taking customer privacy as a right. That's a foundational principle for us. Um, And they're also taking their corporate governance in terms of their relationships with their customers and with the people who use their products in a new way. That sounds great, doesn't it? It all sounds good. I mean, lots of corporations talk about this. The The real issue is, do they actually live up to it? And that's on Cisco to actually meet those goals that they've set for themselves. Now, I believe Cisco will, by the way. I actually think it's very I think it's excellent that Cisco is. They just need to change their marketing message because the, my, my sort of, it felt really uncomfortable to see a millionaire Cisco executive. Those, I mean, Cisco executives earn millions a year, right? Mm-hmm. They're not poor people telling me that they're out there doing social governance and participating in charity programs and supporting environmental stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But not talking about the products. Like there was no product announcements at Cisco Live of any commitment. Um, And then I started thinking about how do other companies present this message? So when, so the one I'll, I'll pick out on here is Apple because it's so well known, is Apple talks about privacy and trust as a casual mention to the product announcement, right? Mm -hmm. So 
when they talk about smartphones and they talk about, you know, this iPhone is our best ever phone and it's got these amazing features. And then right at the very end, he said, and of course, you've got our commitment to provide you with privacy as a right. We'll never share your data, blah, blah, blah. It's a feature. It's not a product in its own right. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Uh, I will also say that technology, the technology industry is increasingly coming under more scrutiny from the US government and outside observers. And so, I mean, it's mostly focused on the social media giants, but I'm sure Cisco is uh, reading the political tea leaves. And so putting forth this message of we're nice, we're good, we're here for you uh, is good politics in addition to presumably good business for them. I definitely do. I think very much so. It is good business for them. Um, I think the challenge here is that the messaging here was done in the wrong way. Instead of saying our ESG is a product and making a bigger, a whole hour long presentation of that, you can trust Cisco. We're committed to customer privacy. To me, that's like, yes, we're selling WebEx personal insights, which is tracking everything that you can do, you're doing in your workday. It's taking transcriptions of all your audio calls and storing them up. It's tracking how many aisles you're online and what you're doing on your computer. But that data is only available to you as a person, right? Yeah, this is where the uh, pledges don't always meet the actual product. A product like Personal Insights, as you mentioned, seems to me a little bit too Orwellian. And they insist that, you know, your manager can't see this information on your productivity throughout the day. But I feel like I didn't hear any specific announcements on how they're actually putting controls around that protection. So, you, again, if you're going to walk the walk on privacy, you actually have to deliver it as well. And I feel like Personal Insights is not. So there's this tension mm. that, we're, that we're experiencing it's in general, yeah. your point about messaging, it's hard for any multi-billion dollar corporation to seem authentic when it talks about caring about people. It's just hard to pull off. Yes. And if it, if you're going to pull it off, say, you know, we have WebEx personal insights, we're tracking all of this personal data about you, but we have an absolute commitment to privacy and trust. And we guarantee you that your data will not be shared with anybody without your permission. Right. right. You don't give a one hour presentation about privacy and trust and then say, and that's reflected in our product. Right. <laughs> yes. I think at least that's how it came across to me. And yeah. uh, so I'm very excited to see Cisco getting on board and working hard to gain customer trust. Um, but I think they need to tune up the way they present it into something that's more easily digested. Yeah. All right, we'll leave that there. Uh, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Path Solutions. If you knew everything that your network equipment do, could you run a better network? Path Solutions built TotalView to make it easy to root cause troubleshoot network problems that other monitoring systems aren't even aware of. TotalView automatically monitors all devices and interfaces in your entire infrastructure so that your management and users can hold you to be responsible for the entire network so you have the visibility to match. TotalView goes deep. It collects performance, configuration, 19 different error counters, QoS, and other stats to give it a depth of understanding. And then this information goes through a heuristics engine to produce plain English answers of what's broken. This means you can spend your time improving operations because you know everything that your network equipment knows. The core offering includes everything you need to run a healthy network. That's NetFlow, path mapping, diagramming, IPAM, network configuration, automation, server monitoring, and more. Their solution is don't turtle your network. And if you schedule a technical overview meeting and mention packet pushers, you'll get a turtle plushie. So visit pathsolutions.com today and learn how to get total network visibility on your network. That's pathsolutions.com. We thank Path Solutions for being a sponsor. Back to the news. The tech website, The Information, is reporting that Amazon is developing its own switch ASICs to squeeze more performance out of and control over its network. It would also happen to make Amazon less reliant on Broadcom. 
Now, this is a uh, story published on the information, which is a paywall, so you, you may struggle to get access to it. It was um, reported by a number of other technology sites by referencing the original article on yep. the information. So you'll have to sort of take it at face value. Um, Amazon making its own switch ASIC is actually significant because making a Swiss ASIC uh, is actually a $100, $200, 300000000 million spent upfront mm-hmm. to get a, an ASIC in play. And if you're Amazon, you may actually go and buy a license for somebody else's technology at the start, if that makes sense, and so that you get a head start. So you have to pay an upfront fee to get access to a license, and then you start making modifications to it to make it fit your model. Um, if you're thinking how that sounds a bit weird, think about how Apple has taken the ARM CPU in its smartphone, if you're tracking Apple's smartphones, and um, how they've managed to take the ARM and change the way that the chip build out on the die is highly customized for their particular needs. And I suspect Amazon will do something similar. It will go and talk to one of the existing foundries and say, we want an asset. Can we buy a license, an outright license? You know, We'll pay you a one-off fee and then start iterating around that. So some details around this, uh, Amazon did acquire a chip design company called Annapura Labs back in 2015, uh, and Annapura has since designed ARM processors and NICs that Amazon uses in its servers. So it does have some design chops, but as you mentioned, it's not just the design. You also have to go to a fab <laughs> to build it mm-hmm. out. Uh, yeah. We also know that Broadcom uh, it, you know, has issues with the, a lot of the companies it supplies to because it uh, is a very tough competitor. Yeah, Broadcom's got a pretty... Uh, rough reputation in the industry. It likes to bully its customers. Like, in fact, the whole ASIC maker industry, you know, we've said before that Intel, Broadcom, Qualcomm, they don't, they want to take control of their customer, of the consumer, not the customer. Customer is the is the middleman. And so what they do is they don't sell the chip to the company and then let them do whatever they want with it. They license it to them. So when you buy the ASICs and you're allowed to sell them on, but you actually have licensing conditions attached to them. You're not allowed to, to sell this product to do anything other than what the license says. Right. So when a switch company buys a Broadcom, you know, uh, Trident chipset, they're only allowed to use it in this configuration with these modes. And then to maintain further control, Broadcom, and the same exists for all the other ASIC makers at this point in time, they provide a binary blob of software that sits between the network operating system and the ASIC. And right. that is the only way that the vendors can get through to the core. And that is a licensed piece of software. And if you lose it, uh, you can get around it by buying a license to write directly to the ASIC. And some companies like Cisco, and I think Juniper might have that. Uh, but Broadcom still has licensing terms where they can revoke your access to use the ASIC, as we learned with Cumulus Networks uh, late last year when they were acquired by NVIDIA. Right. Um, and so if Broadcom is taking uh, an aggressive position, and the article actually quotes, but that relationship is frosty, according to the report, in part because Broadcom CEO Hoktan is known for hardball negotiation tactics, including surprise price hikes, pressing for exclusivity deals, and dramatically extending lead times if customers push back. So imagine being a networking vendor, committing to delivering, you know, to rolling out a product in six months, and then Broadcom turns up and says, uh, we want 20% more. <laughs> And you say, you can't pay 20%. So, oh, well, it'll be 12 months until you get the product. That's a nice roadmap you have there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Exactly. And uh, I've heard stories pretty consistently for five years about Broadcom and how the vendors have been somewhat reluctant to engage with Broadcom. But on the other hand, they feel trapped because that's the ASIC that's going out there. And once they've written their software for it, they're kind of stuck with it. Yep. So I imagine that if 
uh, AWS is the one company who can easily afford a quarter of a billion dollars to roll out its own ASIC. Um, whether this will change the Broadcom, Marvel, Intel approach to selling ASICs, who knows? Who knows? But uh, there are plenty of other ASIC makers out there. There's Marvel, Prestera, Intel's Barefoot, of course, the Barefoot Tofino. Yep. Uh, we've got Inovium uh, coming out with products, continuing NVIDIA, Mellanox, of course, and there's another maker, Nephos Taurus, at the high end. These are the data center class. And in the campus, there's about another 10 makers of campus ASICs. So Broadcom doesn't have a lock on this market, right. but it does have a position where in the mindset of some customers, it is the leading asset maker, a bit like Intel, but that can be broken down if things don't get go right. So, so I just find this notion of Amazon wanting to build its own ASICs kind of hard to believe given that Broadcom is definitely not their only partner. And I'm also not sure how much more performance and optimization Amazon could squeeze out of building its own ASIC versus taking advantage of a programmable ASIC they could get from an Intel or an Anovium. I also think, you know, spinning up your own ASIC, the, the economies of scale seem hard to me to justify. I could see doing it for servers, which Amazon probably has 10 or 20 times more of than switches, but building mm. your own ASIC, uh, maybe to me, this seems more like maybe Amazon is thinking about doing something with SmartNICs, or maybe Amazon is just sort of floating the story as some uh, uh, leverage against Broadcom when they negotiate. Yeah. I mean, sure. Why not? If right. Broadcom's going to play hardball with them, why not play hardball back and just say, okay, we're going to make our own chips and leak that to the media and then see what Broadcom's reaction is. Right. But I suspect that, you know, if you're going to go down that path, you've also got to be willing to take the, <laughs> you've got take to... the rough with the smooth, you know? Yes, that's right. It's a, it's a big, yeah. bold, it's a big, bold claim. So you yeah. do have to be prepared to maybe back it up a little bit. Yeah. As customers, you should know that Broadcom is a difficult supplier and vendors sometimes, uh, struggle there. And sometimes vendors delivery of networking products is actually due to circumstances outside their control. And it may actually be Broadcom's fault. And if the vendor does tell you there's not much we could do, the vendor did, that could actually be true. Right. The other thing is it's a tough time to get into any kind of silicon because of shortages. So again, I, I, I'm just a little bit dubious about this play, but we got a ton of links well, in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. Well, I'll add one more to the link, Drew. There's a link here this that I found just this morning. TSMC, which is the biggest uh, chip maker in the world today, it's cancelling its price cuts on chip manufacturing, but promising a $100 billion investment surge in the next three years. So it literally plans to build more infrastructure to make chips. So it's uh, before, the, before the governments get going and it starts to see competitors in its fab, it's cutting discounts and promising to build out more factories. Okay. Which is like, effectively, we want to build more of a monopoly, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We are trying to squash any notion of anybody else trying to build up their own fabrication capability outside of Taiwan. And then here's our wow. $100 billion bet in that. Yes. And the article quotes, TSMC is already building a $12 billion facility in Arizona. And it's expanding its three nanometer chip facilities in Taiwan, which is, of course, where most of its production is. It also operates two chip plants in China and in Nanjing and Shanghai. And uh, they want to continue the spending uh, 20 billion now and in 2024 to build new, two new chip plants also in Arizona, which will be very popular with the US government who wants to see yes. you know, supply chain move out of Asian markets in case of, yeah. Yes, for lots of reasons. As we talked about last week. Yep. <laughs> All right, moving on. In January of 2021, the networking and IoT gear maker Ubiquiti disclosed a breach of cloud-based 
account credentials of customers, and at the time, Ubiquity said the attack had targeted a third-party cloud provider, and Ubiquity was not the target. Now, security reporter Brian Krebs is citing a whistleblower who alleges that Ubiquity downplayed the security of the breach and alleges that the attackers, quote, obtained full read-write access to Ubiquity databases at Amazon Web Services. The whistleblower says he knows this because he actually participated in Ubiquity's response to the breach. This is very interesting for lots of levels. The background here is that Ubiquity executives, and particularly the CEO, has a long history of being uh, loose with the truth, shall we say, mm-hmm. and also being fairly generous with his reporting to the SEC and financial disclosures. And he's been caught out a couple of times over the years. So when you have a situation where somebody says you haven't performed a full disclosure and we've got uh, a whistleblower suggesting that the breach was much worse, your initial reaction is to say that's entirely credible. The people in charge of Ubiquity are not necessarily people with a proven history of being trustable, trustworthy, shall Mm -hmm. we say, as Mm -hmm. we talked about earlier in the show. Um, And so maybe there's something in that. However, when I read this article, there is a lot of hyperbole coming out in those quotes. Mm. And it does sound like somebody's got an apps to grind or a case to make or it was catastrophically worse than reported and legal silenced and overruled efforts to decisively protect customers. You know, uh, that's, that's what the whistleblower has, has written in, I guess, a letter to uh, the European Data Protection Agency. Yeah, that's, that's not succinct, clear language. That's, that's someone with an axe to grind, you know what I mean? So there's a... Right. We have to, yes, we have to take, uh, we have to understand that these are just allegations. They're coming from a source that isn't named. And Brian Krebs says he's not naming them because this person fears repercussions. So <laughs> we've got two sides <laughs> of the story here and we're trying to parse where we can get the best information. The claims weren't so, you know. You feel like they're a little dramatic. They feel a little bit overdramatic, right? Um, but then again, you know, Ubiquity released a statement. The experts identified no evidence that customer information was accessed or even targeted. The attacker who unsuccessfully attempted to extort the company by threatening to release stolen source never claimed to have accessed any customer information. This, along with other evidence, is why we believe that customer data was not the target of or otherwise accessed. The whistleblower would point out that they don't actually have any access logging to know whether the data was accessed or not. Right. So Ubiquity can insist there's no evidence of that customer data was accessed, but the whistleblower says that's because you aren't keeping logs. So how would you know? <laughs> See, then it becomes a game of he said, she said, you've yes. got an executive team with a history of running fairly loose with the truth and it's stretching, you know, avoiding disclosure. And you've got a whistleblower on the other side making some fairly hyperbolic claims. I don't know where I stand on this one. So I'm going to sit on the fence and say, could be. Might not be. Yeah, my takeaway is that if you have not changed your username and password credentials on Ubiquity Gear since January of 2021, you may want to just do so now, just in case. Just in case, yeah. All right, we're going to wrap up with a story from the Sounds Like Science Fiction Department. Researchers from Georgia Tech have developed a prototype antenna that they say can harvest electromagnetic energy from 5G radio waves, and it's just a small amount of power, around 6 microwatts. But the researchers say the antenna could be used to replace batteries in like small IoT devices like sensors for smart cities, metering, and agricultural use cases. So the idea of harvesting radio waves as an energy source has been around Oh, since I was a kid, when we used to make crystal radios. Did you ever make a crystal radio? I never did, but I heard about them, yeah. Yeah, and the idea was is that the radio signals is enough to actually run a radio, and you have a specific crystal, you tune it to the frequency, and you can actually listen to the radio without a battery. And uh, that kind of went away over the years because there's not enough uh, power, transmitted power in a digital signal, and only worked for AM radio. 
but this is the idea here is that these 3D printed antennas, which makes them really easy to manufacture, they're literally printed on a piece of flexible medium, sort of looks a bit plastic, like a plastic substrate. Yeah. And then they print out the antenna using a metallic compound on the top. They're only drawing around six microwatts at 180 meters from a 5G transmitter. That's not a lot. But if you think about a little CR2020 button battery, like goes into your um, electronic devices, like your um, sensors around the house these days, you know, your home automation yep. system. Yep. Right. That's sort of at that level of power draw. Right. If you could just put these antennas in there, you could actually just not have batteries. They'd literally be farming power from the 5G signal to run these sensors. And that would be good, I think. It's very cool. I mean, the fewer batteries we can have to deploy is great for the environment. It's also great because you don't. there's less labor in having to swap stuff out. It does make a lot of sense if it's actually feasible for things like meters and sensors and other um, devices that would be distributed wide scale in dense urban environments. So if this does actually work, yeah, why not? Yeah, could be really, it's an interesting thing. Of course, 5G being 180 meters from a 5G transmitter is not actually all that far. You right. probably want yes. Um, so hopefully they can iterate or, or make that somewhat better. There's plenty of reasons to question this, but this is the fun article in our show today. Something a little hopeful that a little step forward to environmental sustainability by getting rid of batteries actually might be kind of fun. And it's kind of a neat read. Have a read. Yeah, have a read. And the link also includes a link to the actual report that the Georgia Tech researchers released. I guess it's in an open access journal. So you can actually go see uh, the, the deep technical details if you are interested. And of course, if you've got any follow-up about today's show, if we've uh, said something to you that you don't like or something that you agree with and you want to let us know, if you go over to packetpushes.net slash FU, so FU for follow-up, there's a little form there where you can fill out and tell us what it is. If we've said something that you don't agree with or perhaps our view is wrong or there's some more information that you want to give us or you want to give us some feedback, packetpushes.net slash FU. All right. Now stick around. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation coming up with the Ruben Networks talking about identity and security and identity as a critical component of zero trust network access. Uh, that's coming right up. You're listening to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. We're sponsored today by Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise company. And we're going to get into a few different topics, including the role of identity and security and why identity is a critical component of zero trust approach to network access. We're also going to discuss SASE or the Secure Access Services Edge. That's the latest and greatest term from the analyst buzzword factory. And we're going to raise some questions that network engineers should be asking about SASE as they figure out how to protect users and apps at home and branches on-prem in the cloud and everywhere. Our guest from Aruba is John Green. He is the Chief Security Technologist. John, welcome to the podcast. So let's kick it off. What role does user identity play in a zero trust approach? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, if we look at historically at how we've done networking in the past, you know, we, we haven't really focused on identity in the past. We've sort of said, once you get presence on a network, um, you just start transmitting packets and, and the, the job of the network is to move those packets around. Um, packet pushers. Uh, to, 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 <laughs> well done. Yeah, oh, yeah not, to, not, to, not to put it <laughs> right. You know, and that's led to some of the security issues that we see these days, where those networks were really never designed to be secure in the in the first place. So going back to the history of of IP networking. Um, so, so what we'd like to do now, you know, this idea of zero trust came out uh, probably about two thousand eight or so, and the idea then was. Just because you have presence on some network segment, you know, you're plugged into an Ethernet port, you're connected to a Wi-Fi network, and, and so on, that shouldn't give you any automatic access to services. We used to look at sort of the internal network or the intranet, and the intranet as being two different networks 
the intranet was secure and safe because we only had authorized users on it. And the internet was dangerous because we didn't really know what was, what was going on there. And separating those two, we had a, some kind of security perimeter, usually a firewall, maybe, maybe more. What we're looking at more and more these days inside of enterprise networks is those networks shouldn't be trusted. Um, in fact, we, we want some form of authentication, identification, uh, authorization before we're going to grant any sort of access uh, to services. And that's something that can happen at the application level. It's something that can happen down at the, at the device or at the, at the network level, kind of depending on the capabilities of those, um, of those types of devices and, and, and the applications themselves. I think the interesting thing here is that Aruba has been right at the forefront of this user authentication with the ClearPass product. You've been there for, what, over 10 years now, I think? We have, yeah. So Zero Trust is not new to you. Like other companies had to go out and acquire or build or develop it internally on their own, whereas part of the Wi-Fi heritage of Aruba is that you always had this Zero Trust thing right at the start because Wi-Fi was always like... You've got to authenticate to, to connect to the Wi-Fi was always a key feature from right the way back. I, I think the zero trust is actually a transition, though, because it stops just being, oh, I'm connecting to the Wi-Fi and therefore it's a Wi-Fi specific thing. It's kind of a, a universal thing. And it's doubly important now compared to what it was two years ago because people aren't coming back to work or some of them are, some of them aren't, or we're going to be in a situation where it's much more distributed. I call it distributed work. Some people call it hybrid working, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but the key here is that people aren't going to be plugged into the wired network and therefore trusted because they're in a physical premise. The, the answer here is the edge of the network is somewhere. Well, they, sh they shouldn't be trusted just because they can get in into a building and, and connect to a physical network anyway. Yeah. Um, that's been a common uh, attack technique that you know, pen testers have used for, for years now is um, when people are coming back from lunch, you know, hold your badge backwards and be on talking on the phone. Somebody will happily open that door for you and, uh, and hold it for you so you can come in. Mm -hmm. And once you're in, you've kind of, you're, you're in at that point. So this idea of zero trust applies just as much to the Wi-Fi network as it does to the, to the wired network. Now it's more difficult on the wired network. Usually people have already built these networks. They haven't implemented things like 802.1x port authentication and doing mm -hmm. so can be a challenge. Um, you know, if, if, with technologies like ClearPass, you know, you, that you mentioned, we try to make that easier. We try to have sort of fallback pathways. Hey, if, if 802.1x fails, then, then take this fallback um, posture. But you know, before that, or without those types of technologies, that can be a difficult transition. Whereas with Wi-Fi, that's just that's just built in. Yeah, it's built into the the Wi-Fi at the physical layer. So if if we're talking about moving authentication to anywhere, mm -hmm. how does that work? So if I'm an if I'm a network engineer and my CIO is saying to me, "We've got this security risk. People are distributed workers all over the place. How am I going to authenticate users at home? How does a Ruber address that?" So two answers to that. When you're at home and you're needing access back into enterprise services that sit back in a corporate data center somewhere, and that that's still, despite the rush to the cloud, those sorts of things still exist. Um, mm. Traditional VPN is one answer to that. And there's a newer approach that some people call zero trust network access or ZTNA. That is a, a another way of doing that. And it, in, in actuality, if you look at ZTNA, it's kind of going back to the SSL VPN days. That's that's a little bit what it what it looks like, but it's mm -hmm. essentially tunneling tunneling things over SSL, but on a per, per application basis. So 
taking some of the um, almost a CASB approach like you would use for, for cloud services and applying it to, to corporate access. But we still see an awful lot of traditional VPN or, you know, in, in Aruba's case, we provide a product called the remote access point, which says, it, think of it like a, a, a wired and a Wi-Fi access point with a hardware VPN client built into okay, it right. that, that you hand to an employee. That, so that's a, a common way of, of seeing things out there. For things in the cloud, um, the cloud, you know, fortunately, because it's on the public internet, has always been built for this type of thing. And so, you, you know, the typical mo- method there is single sign-on portals. You know, you you go to a web application, you put in, you know, your email address, and it says, ah, I recognize you. You are a single sign-on enabled user. Redirect you back to your corporate single sign-on portal, and then you can go and 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 hit that site. There are zero trust networking companies out there, and that is their only product. Correct. To put a web page in front of an existing web app and do the authentication separately. And from- that's, that's why zero trust yeah. is one of these terms that, you know, it, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. There, there is a, there is a definition that Forrester coined and then they expanded on that. Um, but the industry has taken that and run with it. And so I, I always try to bring it back to that, that definition of just because you're connected to a particular network segment doesn't mean you have access to, to services. So that's what, what about- zero trust means. I think it's also true that we're also in a situation where we still have a lot of legacy devices, printers, IoT, uh, you know, sensors are coming onto the networks that may not support dynamic authentication. Does Aruba handle that? We do. And that's something we're going to be dealing with for a very long time. So there is there is a application-centric view of zero trust, which says move it all to the application layer. That ignores all of those, those types of devices that you just mentioned. And for that... Hmm. We have to apply something at the network layer. In the old days, we called it NAC, Network Access Control, mm-hmm. um, and and sort of the industry went off on a tangent of what NAC meant and thought it was all about endpoint posture and that sort of thing. So I think the the zero trust naming uh, is probably a better term for it without confusing the issue too much. But effectively, we want to go through a process of identifying what's on the network, putting some type of authentication in place. And now that that might not be 802.1x; it might just simply be MAC address, and we we all know MAC addresses aren't aren't safe, and they're not a safe authentication token. But if I back that up with an authorization profile that says, "Okay, we've identified you as a printer. The only thing we're going to let you do is printer things. You're going to talk to the the, the print server and and nothing more. Mm. If we ever see you do anything more, you know that's a security incident. We've at least lim- limited the damage that somebody can do if they if they try to break that that system. But that also implies you've got the visibility to be watching that endpoint device and seeing what kind of traffic it's sending across the network. We do. And that that's where, you know, Wi-Fi devices, again, coming back to that, makes it really easy because you're bringing it back to a device that has deep packet inspection um, built into that. With wired networks, you know, the, the, the you've got varying capabilities there, but um, we have ways of doing things like tunneling traffic back to inspection points um, within, a, within a corporate network for devices that might be less trusted. So uh, the key to that, though, is I want to configure, say, a 48-port switch and say every port is the same. Depending on what I plug into it, that's going to determine the behavior. So if it's a corporate laptop with a certificate at the other end, and I've got really good solid user identity for, for what's at the other end of that link, I'm just going to switch that traffic onto a, you know, a corporate VLAN normally. If it's something that I have much less confidence in, I'm going to tunnel that back to something that can either do inspection or, or further enforcement. So I had teased Sassy at the beginning of the podcast and mm-hmm. analysts and vendors both are talking a lot about it. Um, one of the key benefits of saying is because we have these security and authentication services in the cloud, 
you don't have to backhaul traffic from like a branch or a home office for that in security inspection layer. But do you see SASE as sort of the all or nothing proposal, like we're all going there, or are there reasons to still have some security infrastructure on premises? We, we can't. It can't be all or nothing. Um, SASE makes a huge amount of sense when you've got cloud hosted applications. So, I mean, uh, sitting here as an HPE employee, we use Office 365 extensively. It would be silly for me to VPN my Office 365 traffic back to a corporate data center, send it through whatever sort of processing is going to happen there, and then send it back out to the internet. Um, that negates a lot of the benefits of having it in the cloud in the first place. Right. Yet there's still security risk there. Um, so we, we, we have a bunch of partnerships with um, different SASE type companies to provide those security services in the cloud. And, and for cloud-hosted applications, that makes a huge amount of sense. But there are still applications that live in inside the corporation. And for those, it, it makes little sense to send those off to a, a SASE inspection point when I'm only going to send it back down inside the, the corporation again, especially if it's not web traffic. Uh, the SASE engines t- tend to mostly be focused around web traffic. And we've got, you know, we've got SAP thick clients in some cases inside the company still running. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they know what to do with that type of traffic. So no, I think I think it very much makes sense to um, mm. look at what's the destination of this traffic and where does it need to go from from here. Um, we look at it from you know looking at the branch office, for example, with SD WAN. There's a lot more organizations now using internet transport to get you know wide area networking services. Um, there, it makes a lot of sense to have the intelligence to say this is a. Uh, application, it's voice over IP. I want to send it directly out to the internet, no security services at all, because there's there's such latency sensitivity versus this other application. I actually want to forward this to Zscaler. So check the box, send it to Zscaler and, yeah. and have it done that way. And a there's third a use case that says, backhaul this back to my corporate data center. There is a tension between the two ways to do SaaS, I think. And that is, there are companies like Zscaler but you send the traffic in and they can do this amazing inspection and deep analysis and they have mystical magic that detects the bad things going on. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that you also need to do it at the edge because in the real world, the real world is messy and incomplete and there are devices that don't fit the model. So you're sort of saying Ruby's got a solution that does both. If you want to do the centralized, run it through a CASB company like Zscaler, then you can. But if you also need to support the features that the real world has and will have for the foreseeable future, there's a place for SASE at the edge. I, th- I think that's the case. I, mm-hmm. I think you know we as Aruba, we're primarily network infrastructure and network transport and and moving the packets around to where they, they need to go. We're not providing those types of services like a Zscaler uh, provides, but we have really intelligent ways to get traffic to Zscaler if that's where you want to send it. And, and it's, it's literally one-click kind of integration. What do you see as the relationship between Zero Trust and SASE? Are they separate? Do they need to be somehow integrated? I think they're really talking about separate things because SASE is really about where does the security happen? And Zero Trust is kind of a framework for, it's almost more of a way to think about your network and, and saying, you know, these things can't be trusted and I have to assume there's attackers in this, this part of the network. They're complementary to each other and they're both driven off of identity very often. You, you, can, you can certainly do a lot more with SASE if you can attach user identity to um, you know, an individual network stream versus having kind of generic IP traffic um, flowing in. But I think they really are separate things. Are there cases where ZTNA and SASE may not make sense? 
I think there's still a lot of legacy applications that are in corporate environments and probably will be for a very long time. We can embrace pieces of zero trust. And I've, I've talked about some of that here of saying, let's, let's focus on at the network level, what do we let in and what do we not let in? We may not be able to get up into the application layer. We may not have, it may not be a web application. It might not have single sign-on capabilities. So there's pieces that we can put in there, but maybe not the full, you know, a lot of people think Google Beyond Corp when they think zero trust. Um, and that's, that's beyond the reach of a lot of types of applications. So there's, there are pieces that we can embrace um, kind of, kind of everywhere. SASE, again, I think it makes sense when you have cloud-hosted applications. I don't know about the use case when you say everything stays on-prem or a majority of traffic stays on-prem. It, it really is kind of customer-dependent and, and dependent on the, the architecture people have deployed. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so much about SD-WAN that is good and powerful. The ROI is clearly there. The ability to do new things with your WAN, to use public WAN, to use low-cost bandwidth instead of high-cost bandwidth and that sort of stuff. And yet when we move into the security part, it starts to get a bit messed up in a way. It does. And that's that's kind of why I think we, we liked seeing that intelligence in branch office sites where you can say, I need to be able to examine what my network traffic looks like and right. and set up policies to say these are the things that 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 need to take place. It's nothing new, right? We've been doing policy-based routing for a very long time. Hmm. What's new with SD-WAN is kind of centralized orchestration of that to where you can now we we call it business intent overlays of saying, hey, this is my critical corporate traffic, this is my latency sensitive VoIP traffic. And having a much more auto automated way of of applying those types of policies. That's what we didn't have in the past. It's kind of weird that we always had the the bits like the PFR, the IPsec VPNs. We had all the bits to make SD-WAN. We just never got to making software that would... It's not exactly true, by the way, but if we had have used a centralized software controller to configure all those things, we would have had SD-WAN a lot sooner, perhaps. It's really yeah, it's, not it's that not, much. It's not entirely true. The, the, yeah. the deep packet inspection and the, app, the application identification is certainly somewhat newer. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the raw bits we've we've had for a very long time, but it, it would be painful to configure an enterprise size uh, network in that way mm. 20 years ago. As we hit the end of this, thanks so much. It's been an interesting discussion. Now, Aruba Atmosphere is coming up. We're getting into conference season and there's lots of events coming on. Are you speaking at Aruba Atmosphere this year? Should people come along and hear you yibbity yabba? They should always come, even if not for me. Um, I won't be the most interesting speaker there this year. I'm doing, I'm doing <laughs> part of the tech keynote and it's going to involve costume changes. But um, Atmosphere is free for everyone to attend this year. So I definitely recommend that you you do it, and it's it's some of it is you know Aruba specific, and there's a lot that's kind of generic across the networking industry. So it's I think it's a good com conference for anyone to show up to. Right, Aruba Atmosphere is uh, April 13th and 14th this year, and if you want to register for free, it's at arubanetworks.com/atmosphere. John, I for one want to see the costume changes. Uh, I'll try not to let you down. <laughs> All right. Well, that does wrap up our time. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.